1: Everybody to in nightlight. It is uh, <clears throat> afternoon where I am, but morning, noon, or evening, I'm so glad that everybody is sharing their time with us. Uh, as you can tell, the pollen has gotten to me once again. But other than that, I will hoarsely try to get through this show. I want to thank Ken Quiet Hawk for his amazing intro. As always, I, I endorse him and support him. He is a native storyteller, and he and his wife are just amazing people. Search them out on the Internet. They, they have a tradition that is quite remarkable. Um, I have a, an amazing gentleman with us tonight. I'm really very excited about this show. His name is Gary Lechman, and he is an author and lecturer of consciousness, counterculture, and the Western esoteric tradition. His works include Dark Star Rising, Beyond the Robot, and The Secret Teachers of the Western World, as well as the one we're going to be talking about tonight. And in his spare time, he is a founding member of the rock band Blondie, and he was inducted, inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2006. He's an amazing man, and the book that we're going to be talking about is his latest book. It's The Return of Holy Russia. And it's, I learned a lot. I highly recommend this book. It's a history of how mystical and spiritual influences have shaped Russia's identity in politics and what it means for the future of world civilization. He examines Russia's, Russia's spiritual history from its pagan origins and Eastern Orthodox mysticism to secret societies, Rasputin, Rorik, Blavatsky, and Dostoevsky. And it explains the visionary writings of the spiritual philosophers of Russia's Silver Age, which greatly influenced Putin today, as well as exploring Russia's unique identity and its history of messianic politics and apocalyptic thought. What, what, <laughs> I'm going to start again. And its history of messianic politics and apocalyptic, apocalyptic thought mean for its future in the world stage. It was, a, it was an amazing book. I did learn quite a, di- quite a bit from it. And I have to admit, um, it opened my eyes tremendously because when we look at, at, at ourselves and our country and, and how it's evolved, we, we kind of assume that every country evolves in the same way, but this was not the case of Russia, where America only goes back a couple hundred years Russia goes back thousand, more than a thousand years. And it was fascinating to read about its people and its cultures and how their history and evolution impacted how they look upon themselves and how they look upon their country and how they look upon um, their, their, their place in the world. And it, it was so fascinating. I am so Glad to have Gary with us today. Gary, welcome to the show.
2: Well, thank you uh, for having me on.
1: Oh, it's, it's my pleasure, absolutely. I, I think that your book was amazing. Um, I didn't expect the kind of history lesson I got, but I'm so delighted that I got it.
2: Well, to tell you the truth, I didn't expect to write um, History of Russia when I started out uh... Uh, doing it, um, but once I started doing the reading about it and uh, became fascinated with it, just like yourself, because I didn't know much about it, the only bit of Russian history say that I knew anything about uh, around the around the time of the revolution or leading up, you know, Rasputin and all of that uh, kind of last, last days of the Romanovs, and um, yeah, no, it just was fascinating, so once I started writing it, uh, the, the first couple of chapters are uh, I'm going to say theoretical, but that'll scare your listeners away. It's not, it's not, it's more like a, it's more like a character study of this, of this type that I talk about throughout the book called Russian man, which is a peculiar kind of contradictory, enormous uh, character that's able to um, embody sort of opposites and polarities that in the West, you know, we, we wouldn't be able to do. And, uh, but then once I, so to set that stage, and then I started telling the story, it's, it, it is this kind of story, and it's this sort of narrative, and I just became fascinated with it. So I was learning as I went. Um, so with any luck, perhaps uh I can pass that excitement that I was feeling myself on to the reader.
1: Well, I caught it for sure. Um, you know, the history of Russia, you know, it took from the East, and it took from the West, and it combined the two. And I was so fascinated with, you know, it portrayed the West, us, or or Europe, um, as cultured and materialistic, and the East, of course, is spiritual. And and the two influences created what is now Russia. And I never looked upon Russia as spiritual at all. Mm. And well, I mean, and I'm oh, sorry. No, go ahead.
2: No, I was just going to say, I mean, that was one of the questions I wanted to answer, is that why why is it holy, Russia? I mean, I I knew, again, from a little bit of history that that was a sort of title it had had taken on in the 19th century after Napoleon, you know, the Napoleonic Wars. Um, But there's a certain peculiar, you know, character to it. So, as you're saying, that you you never thought of Russia as, as particularly spiritual. But I guess that's probably because, you know, uh, our generation, I would think, knows um, of Russia become the Soviet Union, and um, uh-huh. that was um, not Russia. I mean, many people would say that wasn't Russia. That was a Western idea that was implanted in Marxism was a western idea. and it, it well, again, that's another aim or theme of the book was that there was this wonderful re- renaissance and resurgence of Russian spirituality at the, the the end of the 19th century into the early 20th century but then um and it, it had wonderful promise and then that was all that was cut short by the Bolshevik revolution and then you had this 70 years of the Soviet Union and um, I mean I know there's people today who don't you know sadly people get born after you and so they they, they, they they're born <laughs> into a world that's very different And the one you were born into, and you talk about the Berlin Wall going down and things like that, they know about it in history books, but they don't, you know, they were born after it, so it was something that wasn't a tremendous event for them. But I I, myself, I mean, I grew up, uh, you know, the Cold War was in place, um, and it was just absolutely incredible to realize that this enormous superpower was just gone. Uh, And then Russia's been going through this um, identity crisis, so that's you know, part of the, the idea of the book too is regaining this notion, which, and part of that, a great deal of that is regaining this character of a kind of spiritual nation.
1: Well, I, I think if you look at—it's a terrible analogy, but it's the best one I've got—if you look at a country as though it's a cake, and mm. and the cake takes on the the influence or the taste of the ingredients that are put into it. The ingredients that go goes into the the concept of Russia is so rich and it, it's so spiritual. There's there's such a connection to the land and and to the service to to the land that, that in this country we don't have. I mean, I, I'm not saying that the United States isn't spiritual. There are parts that mm-hmm. truly are, but 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 the Russian people themselves are. Deeped in, in in a in a, in a it, I, religious isn't the right way in a spiritual connection to the land. Well, and, I, I think and, one
2: of the things. I'm oh, sorry. No, go ahead. No, I, I, no, what I was going to say is in, in the states. There's um, from the beginning there was a separation of church and, and state. Uh, mm-hmm. Sorry, I, I, don't, I, don't, I, I don't know if you're hearing that noise. of some problems with my computer as I'm talking to you. Um, there's a separation of church and state, and so it. it although you know there are, um, I don't know what you want to say, sensibilities in the states that would not like that. They they would like to have you know um, the church and the state be closer closer wed. Um, from day one in Russia, that was the case. I mean, Russia came into being in the way that we see it, understand it as as this you know peculiar uh, nation when. Um, uh, the, the indigenous sort of pagan Russians adopted um, uh, Greek Orthodox uh, Christianity. And uh, that's always been there. You know, that's always been there. I mean, the estate, you know, was founded by uh, sort of, you know, well, well, we can say sort of radical almost fundamentalists who, who, who left um, England and, and came to, you know, the new world to set up uh, but there was still something very different about it, too, because that was kind of a form of Protestantism which doesn't have the, myst- the mystical side to it in the same way that um, Eastern Orthodox Church does. It has a kind of mystical character to itself, and that's another thing that informs the whole kind of Russian um, sensibility.
1: Well, and, you know, I think the other thing that your book brings out that that I was not aware of is that <clears throat> you look at Russia and, and from what, I have read in the history books, and you know my history books are old, um, but basically, was that Russia went from 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 your serfs and your upper class and your aristocracy to Marxism and communism and and all of that, <clears throat> but it didn't. And and what what I am finding so fascinating is is the uh, the, the See, I, I'm really hooked on the spirituality of it. I it, I never gave Russia credit for spirituality or philosophy, and you had such a rich group of ph- philosophers there that that they, they basically put on boats and sent out of the country, which was phenomenal.
2: Well, this is one of the real tragic things about when um, the Bolshevik uh, Revolution that finally you know ended and the civil war was. Um, <clears throat> much at an end and you have to remember that marxism lenin and and marxism this was um a western um, import i mean according to marxist theory the revolution shouldn't have happened in russia it should have happened in in germany which was the most uh, the highly industrialized nation in europe and that's where according to theory it should it should have taken place but the the problem with the serfs the situation with the serfs which was throughout the whole 19th century and going back to the you know, the 18th century—that um, was the main thing, and people were desperate for anything that would uh, change things. And the whole 19th century was so much of it was about what do we do about the serfs? <laughs> to put it that way, because they were, you know, there were—you know—there were millions of people living at a substandard you know, level that were. Uh, I mean, it's so, not exactly the same thing, but sort of on the same lines as the slaves in in, in the states. Um, uh-huh. And um, this was something that you know uh, troubled everyone um, uh, for a whole century until finally um, Lenin basically uh, was more ruthless than anyone else who came before him, and the, the time was right and just uh, struck because uh, you had a lot of other things happening at the same time. You had World War One, and you know the whole sort of Rasputin scandal. So a variety of things were happening at the same time that sort of created the, the the, the proper conditions for the kind of radical takeover that, that, that Lenin Lenin affected. But th- it was the outcome of this long century of, of dealing with this um this problem of what, what do we do with these people, you know, that are and they love the Tsar, you know, they're the children of the Tsar. There's this familial kind of sensibility in, in the Russian kind of social uh consciousness where the Tsar is the little father, the serfs are his children and that kind of thing. And um it, it's just uh, uh, what can you say it? There's a tremendous capacity for suffering in, in, the, in the Russian soul, and um, the serfs were the ones who were sort of the emblem of that.
1: Yeah, they, they, as a people, it just, I'm wondering, you know, if, if Russia had remained isolated, what would it have become? I mean, would, would, the, would the serfs have, have risen up? Or, or would the, the aristocracy... The, I mean, the, they killed off the Romanovs. So that was the end of it, really. <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah it was that was, well, that was, the, wait, end, wait, that was the end of the czar. I mean... Yeah. Well, I mean, the would, sad, would the sad have... thing is that there was... There were, I was going to say, there was an earlier czar uh, who actually you know, was the one who freed the serfs and was one who actually made a lot of concessions and tried to, you know, mollify things. Uh, but things moved very slowly. And... Um, it was a kind of dance where they where they wanted to make some concessions but not give away, you know, too much power. And um, uh, it just, um, it was very difficult to, you know, maintain the equilibrium that had been um, in place for a while past a certain point. Um, and there were, you know, very many, and, and like today, not at the same level, but there was a great surge of populist um, politics too. There was, there was these great surges of the, Kind of the people, the people's will. So sort of. the people's will was the name of the um, one of the uh, terrorist organizations that um, uh, assassinated um, one of the czars. You know? So uh, and, and in some ways, it was sort of like the 1960s in America. I mean, when I was growing up, you know, all, like John Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, Martin Luther King, um, uh-huh. so many others being
1: being assassinated. you, you speak of the silver age. And, you know, I've heard of Golden Age, but I've never heard of the Silver Age. What, what, what does that reflect upon?
2: Uh, the Silver Age is this time in, in Russia from about, say, 1890 until just before the uh, Bolshevik Revolution, or maybe just before World War I, when it was uh, this remarkable flowering of art and literature and music but also philosophy, as you mentioned, and um, a resurgence of um, kind of religious sensibilities and, and mysticism, and like much of Europe at the time, um, and also cities in the United States, there was a, a an occult revival. You know, things that uh, things of a mystical, occult, magical, supernatural character were very much um, in vogue uh, uh, and informing the arts and literature and things of that sort. And this was um, I mean, one of the reasons I did the book was because in 2014, I believe, um, Vladimir Putin, the Russian president, um, he um, gave a reading list to some of his regional governors, and this is at in the annual meetings of um, United Russia, which is the, you know, the main political party there that's been in power for, for ages now. I mean, and Putin uh-huh. just voted himself in for another, you know, Interminable, you know, in in many ways as the czars were. Uh, I mean, that's that's another story that that runs throughout the book. But um, what was fascinating to me was um, that some of the people that he had on this list were some of these philosophers from the Silver Age. And as you mentioned, the philosophy steamers, these were these um, steamboats that Lenin um, put philosophers, historians, scientists, uh, also poets and writers and so on, um, on these steamers and exiled them um, out of, out of uh, Russia in 1922. And they were sent out to Europe, and some of them uh, did arrive, some of them didn't, some flourished. Uh, but um, he was getting rid of all the competition, basically. And m- 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 most of those people were figures from this period called the Silver Age. So it was fascinating to me that Putin was... I mean, in the first place it was fascinating to me that a world leader was telling his regional governors to read these philosophers. I mean, Putin himself Presents himself as very bookish. I mean, he, he uh, and uh-huh. rightly so. I mean, there's some, There's a very literary sensibility to the Russian, which I would say. I, I don't want to say Americans don't read, but it's not quite the same thing. Um, it, 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 it's, they, there's a certain pride in, you know, the great Tolstoy and Dostoevsky and Gogol, um, things of that sort. And, and Putin himself presents himself in that way. He bops, he, he sort of, uh, name drops people like Dostoevsky and, and so on. His speeches, and so it was interesting to me that he was having his regional governors read some of these philosophers because I was familiar with, with some of them, and I found them very interesting. And some of their ideas have been influential in sort of the esoteric world, not in the mainstream, um, Muslim intellectual tradition. Um, but uh, and then um, I saw the response from the state, some of the Western critics, um, specifically David Brooks in the New York Times, and some others, and they were saying oh you know putin is sort of name checking these philosophers and there are these kind of millenarian um uh, sort of pro pro pan universal russian kind of uh, um what they call sort of messianic kind of writers about russia russia has this messianic role to play in history and yes there was, yes, there, there, there are there's a great deal of elements of that but it's it's actually you know a bit a bit Subtle. That's what I try to do in the book is try to unpack what that means. But their their response to it was very kind of jingoistic and like, oh, you know, um, you know these kind of half baked mystical philosophers. Putin's reading is, you know, trying to give his, uh, but they, you know, his his. his I'm, I'm sorry, just trying. He, he's trying to give himself some validity, and they they took that they, they 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 took argument with
1: that. Well, you know, I I think it's amazing that he is, you know. If they read the books, they become enlightened to a certain degree. Anyhow, so you know, even just reading them makes a big difference. Um, but but what I found fascinating was that he's he's the Russian people seem to be very set in their ways, and and it feels hmm. as though it feels as though he is trying to stretch them back into in some ways. Um a, a, He's trying to make them thinkers, it feels like, and and because the the philosophers that he put on the boat and sent send away were, were remarkable. And: Oh no, no. And, and, go ahead.
2: No, 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 you I, I, I just I'm just talking out loud, I'm thinking out loud, just agreeing with you.:
1: <laughs> Oh, okay. <laughs> All righty. Um, so it, it, it blew my mind away. And, of course, you know, one of the things that that, um, that, that fascinated me with the book was, you know, you, you pulled up people whose names I could relate to, like Rasputin and Rorik and Blavatsky and Dostoevsky.
0: I mean, Rorick
1: is, is, I think, one of my favorite painters of all time. And, you know, he, he, he along with Blavatsky, Helped to found the Theosophical Society. And, um, or he. So, you know, you think of Russia as, as not having a spirit. And what I found from reading the book was it, it was completely contrary to that. They have an amazing spirit that has been held back, held down, but it's there, and it was profound.
2: Well, that's the thing. I mean, all, uh, as I said, during the, the Soviet time, uh, all of that was repressed. I mean, it was an underground culture, uh, and sometimes it was less repressed than others. Uh, after Stalin died, there was what they called the, the Khrushchev Ta. And again, this I remember when I was a kid, I, you know, Khrushchev, I just remember him slam, hitting his, banging his shoe <laughs> on the desk <laughs> of the UN, something like that. And uh, but, you know, there was the, what they call the Khrushchev thaw, and, and so there was some things were you know, less forbidden. There was some, uh, you know, kind of easing up on all that. And then when Brezhnev came to power, it was the opposite. It, it was like the, everything was frozen again. And no, but there's this, uh, that, that's the thing. That's what, that's the thing. That's what interests me now, because because Russia's been going through this identity crisis or went through an identity crisis and after the, the you know, the collapse of the Soviet Union and uh, the attempt at trying to adopt Western ways of free market and all that They went into this you know, kind of tailspin Of identity crisis, they didn't know who they were And all that, and Putin is, seems to me He's, he's, he's trying to give you know, The Russian people an identity again Through um, Reviving this Sensibility of, of Russia's spirituality That reached this peak Or, or, this, or this very um, Intense time in this period The Silver Age, just before the Bolsheviks So he's going back to that and saying, yes, we have to recapture know this this is something that we had before and in a sense i mean just as in the states there's the whole make america great again there's a certain kind of make russia great again too but it's um i mean uh it's, it's not only it's not only through the literature and the spirituality there's you know political and geopolitical uh you know sort of uh, ideas behind that as well but it is sort of but but us let us and all of this stuff has become very very popular again all the stuff that was Forbidden and off limits during the Soviet years, is in the last, you know, 30 years or so, has gone through a remarkable uh, resurgence of popularity. So many of the writers from, from this time, the Silver Age, and then others who who um, even during the Stalin period uh, were sort of known as mystics and all that, and who were, you know, uh, inmates in, in the Gulag. I mean, there are, uh, books by them and a variety of other things. And there's more modern things too. There's something called Anastasianism. Which uh-huh. is um, a, new, a new kind of nature-oriented, um, uh, mystical, uh, you know, uh, spiritual movement that's come out of Russia. And apparently, from what I've read about it, um, it's it's popular in the states as well. And there's new sort yeah. of native Russian Slavic paganism and a variety of different things that have come back up. And you mentioned blavatsky and all that. All these people were you couldn't get them during the, the, uh, the Soviet time, but you can get them in the Amazonas. You know, these kind of mimeographed, uh, um, you know, privately circulated sorts of stuff. But then that became, you know, uh, available again. And so there's a wonderful renaissance of that. There's like a new – they're having their, kind of own, their own new age there now. Um,
1: yeah, it sort of sounds like the 60s were here, um,
0: mm.
1: well, only not quite the same. But, you know, when I look at the United States and Russia next to one another – um, the United States seems to be more materialistically oriented. Um, and I'm not saying that the United States doesn't have spiritual stuff, because it does. But, but what it feels like Putin is reaching for is, is waking people up to their spiritual background and, and trying to blend it with, with, with the politics. But it, 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 it's amazing. I never would have thought, Russia would be where I would see someone striving to to pull the two aspects closer together, and yet that's he. I think you said at some point that that he was um, he he vision he envisions uh, a new Eurasian civilization with Russia as the leader.
2: Well, yeah, uh, another idea. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, yes, yes, this is, I mean, this is another idea that's at work is this notion that, um, um, well, for the longest time, Russia's been sort of seen um, as a kind of backward cousin to the West, to, to Europe, trying, trying to catch up and never quite. And you know, there's been uh, enormous efforts to try and modernize, uh, I mean, I saying, I'm not saying now, but I mean, in the past, you know, sort of like Peter the Great to this great, you know, Peter the Great, he, He built sort of St. Petersburg. It was something that's just designed, and and it was supposed to be modern. And you know, at at that time, the 18th century, it was all based on Western ideas, and it wasn't religious. And you know, it was all you know, it was like New York. It was all laid out in a kind of grid and all that. And so, and again, more recently, with uh, in the 90s, when the attempt to adopt free market and democracy and all that. So there's there's this this dialectic in sort of modern Russian history about how Western it is and we talked, about, we talked about this earlier, that, that actually many people have seen it as this place where the West and the East come together and create something new. And again, this is something that, before the Bolshevik Revolution, this was something that was in the air around Russia, that it, it, was, it was going to give birth to this new kind of cultural, you know, epoch. I mean, Rudolf Steiner talks about that. I mentioned at the beginning of the book that Steiner uh-huh. gave a series of lectures about Russia, and, and a lot of the Russian intelligentsia were very interested in what he had to say, and he had this particular vision of, you know, this coming new age and it was supposed to be you know the first signs of it were appearing in Russia at this time. And other 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 kind of philosophers and thinkers were saying something similar. And uh, now again one of the other ideas that Putin has been kind of reviving to, to to kind of fill the gap in what it means to be Russian Russian now, that we're not communists anymore or Marxist, is um, this whole idea of Eurasia which is the, the with the kind of the mother of all continents. It's it's the largest landmass and it stretches across, you know, from Vladivostok to uh, whatever, Eastern, Eastern Europe. And, um, the idea is that Russia is a new, it's not, um, Eurasia is, is is a new civilization. There's, um, one of the ideas they talk about in the book is that the West is in decline. The West has been kind of in its last, in its sunset years, as it were, uh, and it's, it's losing the prominence and, and um, you know, sort of global power that it once had. And, um, you know, it's not the superpower it was and that kind of thing. And now Russia's start or Eurasia is going to be this new civilization, with its own aims and its own sort of ideals and vision and stuff like that. And which is, this is not necessarily Western. And this is something that sets in place the kind of new Cold War, which is, isn't about sort of economic or political ideologies, you know, capitalism versus communism but it's about sort of the west seems to have seems to have this anything goes kind of sensibility it's you say it's materialism but it's that but it's also everything sort of everything has become kind of um uh, uh, a, a kind of consumer product you know we sort of consume everything uh uh-huh. whether it's things or it's also it's sort of ideals or you know everything's kind of negotiable and amenable and we can have Saying every, everything we, we want, we can have everything the way we want it in different ways. And Putin is presenting Russia as this nation that's adhering to traditional values, you know, sort of the traditional values of, of the church. And you know, he's very he's very strong with the with the resurgent um, Orthodox Church there. So, and this is one of the things that appeals in the states it's appealed to people like Steve Bannon, where he's spoken well of Putin because Putin said, stands up for traditional values and. You know, not not the kind of anything-goes, absolute kind of hyper-liberalism that the, the West has become kind of identified with these days where where everything is negotiable. I mean, everything is up to grabs, you know, your gender, your sex, whatever whatever it is. It's like you can you can choose to be anything. And Putin is sort of saying, well, this is decadent and kind of, you know, materialism is spread out into everything in, in, in the West. And we, we have to be the last nation to hold on to these, you know, um, Christian sort of values and all that.
1: Well, it seems that that during the Silver Age, it was the, the upper echelon of society that was into all of this. The serfs kind of didn't have much to do with any of it. So, <laughs> No, well. it's true.
2: The serfs didn't get around too much. That's true. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, because they were uneducated and they didn't have an opportunity to do anything. So, and they weren't interested. I mean, they were very, very happy with just with the church, you know. They believe in the yeah. church and all of that, and uh, yeah. um, so, but so it, today, I mean, I, 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 yeah. Sorry, go ahead.
1: So, so today, theoretically, there are no more no more serfs, right? So everybody is more or less equal.
2: Uh, well, you know, I mean, you mean there? Uh, oh, yeah. Serf freed. Serf freed in eighteen sixty one. Around then, so. Uh, just like in America, the slaves were freed, and you know, whenever the uh, Emancipation Proclamation. Okay. Uh, and uh, but you know, I'm i I'm, I'm saying, but uh, all 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 of um, no, you're right. I mean, it's not that. So uh, it, um, how do you say it? Um, I mean, I'm 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 not an expert on Russia. I haven't been there. Um, you know, it's most of the book is based on reading and and you know um, reading these philosophers and thinkers and following up. You know, kind of the ideas that, that kind of um, prompted me to do it. But the, what I have read about people, you know, some people interviewing Russians, there, and they're saying, yes, you know, we, 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 we don't have, you know, we, we give up some civil liberties, we don't have quite, but we have never lived as well. Uh, so as you say, uh-huh. I mean, the, uh, I'm perhaps not right now, but the standard of living there for the average person went up, you know, once the kind of chaos, you know, settled. Uh, and out of that, the strong man came to set order again, which is sort of traditionally what happens in Russia. And uh, Vladimir uh, is sort of doing that as well. He kind of pulled everything together, and uh, so the standard living is, is higher. And um, yeah, so I mean, you don't have that problem. Uh, I guess what you do have is the problem where st- it's still this tension between sensibility in russia where it does want to be westernized you know it, it it does want um that that you know to share in those kind of values uh not necessarily at the expense of the spirituality but you know um having the kind of civil liberties that are available in the west and um so but again it's the again i'm not there i'm not on the ground but from what i understand it's much more free there than it has, you know, it ever was in the past and all that. I mean, pretty much everything is available. Um, well, um, it
1: seems to me that that the Russian people basically really want to have a single person in charge. That's what's,
2: well, this it's is, always yeah, I mean, again, yeah, yeah. well, this is a theme that runs through the story, and this is what, um, this, you know, this, as you might expect, there's debate about that. So there's people who say, well, you know, we've looked at Russian history, and it seems, this is what they tend to like. They like to have a strong authoritarian figure. It goes back to the very beginning of Russia, which the, the story is that the indigenous, you know, sort of Slavic settlement, settlements there, they called in the Vikings, these Danes, uh-huh. to come and, you know, to rule them. Basically, we're too, we're too chaotic and messy. We're, we're not able to, you know, stick some kind of order. We're always fighting amongst each other. So you come and rule us. You don't have to raid us anymore. You rule us. We'll take care of you. <laughs> you know, you'll, you'll live very well, and you can, you can protect us from the other Vikings that come. Uh, uh, and uh, that's with, with Rurik. This is supposed to be the beginning. And, I mean, there's a lot of debate about that. But the idea was that, yes, from the very start, there was this notion that, you know, that in, uh, Russians need this kind of strong ruler, and you have a history of that. But there is another strain in it, uh, which is represented by uh, Moscow's rival city, Novgorod, which was the earliest, you know, one of the earliest settlements, which had a more, what we would call liberal or democratic, it had something along, um, it had a kind of council, so it wasn't this autocratic rule and things of that sort. So, I mean, that that voice gets um, drowned out or repressed in a variety of ways. In, in in Russia today, we know about how, you know, the press is often um, Silence and how uh, political opposition is 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 dealt with as well. So that's there, but it's it's kind of crushed down. But the the general kind of overarching kind of story is yeah yes the Russians love a tyrant. I mean the, the main you know the, one of the main stories of that is with Ivan the terrible, um, uh-huh. you know who was. What Again, he's one of these contradictory characters because he was very interested in the arts and, and education and his very religious feeling and spiritual, and then on pilgrimages and all that. But he also had you know, one of the worst tempers in history and liked seeing um, you know, his enemies tortured and, and, and killed his son in a fit and things of that sort. And uh, he, um, you know, he um, because he, be- I mentioned Novgorod, because he believed Novgorod had slighted him in some way. Um, he, he had the city walled up and he massacred something like 40,000 people. So he was, you know, uh, he's <laughs> rightly, named, <laughs> rightly named Ivan the Terrible. But when he felt that he wasn't being appreciated or there was, you know, uh, some conflict with his um, you know, courtiers and all this, he, he left. He just left. He marched out. And um, he, he, he walked out. And then the people went after him and begged him to come back. And he well, said he, he would is. come back, but, uh, but, only, but, it said, but the, here's the thing. He said he would come back, but only on the condition that he had even more absolute power than he had before. Yeah. So there was no, op- no opposition whatsoever. And this is when he initiated the o- oprichniki, who were the, um, the, the kind of first kind of secret police, um, who were a nation of their own within, within Russia. And they, they, they used to ride around on these horses dressed in black, and they had sort of dog heads and brooms. And the dogs was supposed to symbolize them biting the enemies, and the brooms were them sweeping out, you know, the enemies and all these kind of things.
1: Well, it it really seemed to me that first of all, the the climate was so harsh that the people had to be harsh to live there. Almost, they they had to be. Rough, I guess, is maybe a better word, <laughs> and that there, and there was so much, you know, it 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 was the survival of the fittest, and in looking at it all, I mean, you know, you have the different bloodlines in Europe and stuff like that. It that, that was very cultured, but this is not that way. It was unfortunately, it, it is survival of the fittest, you know, and if I can kill you and every, I mean, there were there were. Really bloody takeovers here and there, and the bloodlines didn't seem to you know they didn't seem to breed very true to you know powerful people than then had children that that you know didn't want to rule and mm-hmm. it it just it, it it was it was not exactly um a smooth transition from person to person to person. And and it seems as though there was a lot of intrigue and killing and stuff like that to to claim to to become the Kaiser, and um, so so to me it was it was you know you have to you, there, there was no room for sophistication, just no room
2: for. Well, it. that came that, yeah. I mean that, that that I guess that would come later um, with um, Peter the Great and then Catherine the Great when they were modeling themselves on Versailles on, on the French yeah. shirt. but no you're absolutely right I mean that thing is I mean uh, uh, practically everything I read about it was that the climate the terrain uh, was so demanding that um, the people lived there themselves had to adapt to it and they became kind of you know they were able to withstand you know cold temperatures and things of that sort and, and one of the things I say and I, I don't mean to be facetious in saying that but as I said before, that the Russian people seem to have this tremendous capacity for suffering. And it's almost like the national pastime, uh, because they go through, you know, tremendous kind of eruptions of you know, revolutions and, and uh, assassinations and, um, you know, just collapses of everything, invasions and things of that sort. And I, I say that it's not so much that Russia has a history, it's that it is history because it just, it just, it's, it's like one of those old great epic films. It has everything in it, you know. I mean, and there's a big earthquake at the end. Um, and the other side of it, though, is this, this, kind of, this is sort of somnolent, um, lazy, lethargic uh, side to the Russian people. And I, and I hope the Russians out there are getting offended by my saying this, but this is something that's in the literature itself. There's a Russian novel called uh, Oblomov by Goncharov, and the, it, takes the, it takes the first chapter for the character just to get out of bed. And um, then he spends all day sitting by the stove, I and mean, so you have this kind of—it's um, kind of heaviness—and this is exemplified in all of the stories of the provincial life, you know, outside of the urban areas, like in Gogol's Dead Souls, where you know this
1: Yeah, it's so almost the Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. That's what, it's, it's, it's what it's—it's what well, P.D. Uspensky, who was who's best known as Gurdjieff's you know, uh, most eloquent um, expositor. But he came out of the Silver Age in Russia, and um, he writes about there's a, this kind of life. They call it BIT. It's spelled B-Y-T. It's BIT, and it's this petrified, routine sort of life. And it, it, that's come down to us in sort of theater jargon for so the BIT actor, the BIT player, you know, who plays this kind of you know, uh-huh. the spear carrier, whatever it is, the walk-on. You know, it's just a BIT part. It means that you're not any particular kind of character. You're just, you're just filling in the cipher. And uh, yes, and, but then you have these tremendous convulsions, you know, where, you know, um, it's either the terrible or it's the, uh, what they call the time of troubles um, before the Romanovs came to power when there was this, and you say it's this turbulent, turbulent changeover of power where, you know, brother against brother and family against family. And I mean, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not aficionado of it myself. I have to say I haven't watched it, but I, I know some people said it's sort of like Game of Thrones. Something where there's this constant, you know, uh, Machiavellian or Byzantine again, because you know, it comes out of Byzantium, comes out of Constantinople. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, I see that. kind machin- of machination and and you know planning and, and 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 conniving in the background to you know get people out of the way and all that sort of thing.
1: Well, it, it's just it, it's amazing because you 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 talk about and I think this is the Silver Age, that the, you say it was the time of the God-seekers, pil- <clears throat> pilgrims of the soul, and explorers of the spirit who sought the salvation of the world through art and ideas. Um, there was a renaissance there. There certainly wasn't. There was a time, especially with the icons. <clears throat> they mm. were, I mean, they, they have definitely produced some magnificent things. A- and then of course, another regime came in and they all went, you know, they they were all destroyed.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, the icons, again, this this was, um, I mean, one of the things I try to bring out in the book is is a line from Dostoevsky in his novel, The Idiot, where he says, beauty will save the world. And I can trace in the book, I can sort of trace this back to the earliest beginnings of Russia's adopting um, Greek Orthodox Christianity, because Princess Olga uh, from Kiev, she's already converted to Christianity, but she goes down to Constantinople, which was the second Rome. You know, we have to remember, like, Uh you know, again, that's something in the West. We don't, you know, we don't, we're not as aware of that. You know, there was Rome, and then Rome fell in the Dark Ages and all that. But over in the Eastern Empire, Constantinople was still, you know, there, and it was the dominant center of power until um, it fell to the Turks in 1450s, but uh, in, I don't know, 900-something or other, when uh, or Princess Olga goes down to Constantinople, she's completely overwhelmed by the beauty of it, and, and uh, Hagia Sophia, which is still there, which is a museum now, but it was you know, a Christian yeah. church, the Church of, church of uh, the Holy uh-huh. Wisdom, and then it was a mosque and now it's a museum. I, I was there many years ago, uh, and it's an incredible, fantastic space. And she just was overwhelmed by the beauty, by, by the by the the icons you say, by the you know, the candles lit and incense burning and the chanting and all that. And this this is she said she had to bring this back to her people. And again, when it was her grandson Vladimir, who eventually um he was the the, the ruler, the czar, the king, and he eventually, you know, he, he converted, and then he he forcibly, you know, made uh, Greek Orthodox or Russian Orthodox Christianity the the national religion. Sort of dethroning all the pagan gods. He had sent envoys out, you know, to they went to check out Islam, they went to check out Christianity, um, and he said, well, we we can't, we're not going to convert to Islam because you can't drink. So
0: <laughs> we, we like drinking.
2: <laughs> I'm sorry. That's just can 't do that, and uh, western christianity it 's okay, it was kind of dull, but uh, my God, you know when we went down to Constantinople, kind of that it was just it was like you know some well, i don 't know whatever we would consider some spectacle you know what we would um, you know see today and but i, I don 't even think today we 're so inured to this kind of stuff that it would have the same effect on us, but if you ever on a off chance go to a you know a great old church with the light shining through and incense burning and, and the chanting in the background, you can maybe get a feel that, yes, you're in this atmosphere of, the, of the, the sacred and the supernatural and the other. And the whole idea of the icons, the icons showed the transfigured world. They weren't just works of art. They were portals. They were windows through which you could see to the transfigured world that was on its way, that was, you know, uh-huh. when Jesus came. Yes. And they firmly believed in the second coming. This is the apocalyptic side to this. The history was moving towards the second coming. Jesus is going to return. The world would be transfigured. Time would be no more. Everything would be different. And instead of arguing this point, you know, some sort of theological kind of argument, they, they just showed the icons and the people were just transformed by them because they're absolutely beautiful. And I mean, one of the, one of the stories in the book is when, I mean, the, the most well-known icon painters, uh, Andrei Rubilev, um and not many of his works... Uh, I'm trying to, I don't remember the date's exactly, 1500s, but um, there's a story where one of his most famous icons, which is just called Spas, which is the face of Christ, and it just, it just means save, the savior. It was about to be thrown into a fire, you know, during the, the Bolshevik, early days of the Bolshevik Revolution. It was going to warn the comrades. And one of, one of the, you know, workers of the world saw it and just realized it was this incredible you know, work of art, and he saved it. Uh, but many, many of the works were lost. But, um, yeah, but that, that that was one of the things. The icons were incredible. Um, and they have their own history going back to uh, Egypt and, and uh, sarcophagi and things of that sort, which is fascinating, too. I mean, that was another thing, too, that I got from the doing the book is all these kind of side things. You learn a bit about where this comes from, so the difference between the East and the West church and things like that.
1: Oh, yeah. But can you imagine a government <clears throat> or a king saying, well, you know, let's let's find a, a state religion. And actually, I think they 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 absolutely decided against Catholicism because then the Pope was, you know, the head of the church, and that would mean that that they would have to be under the power of the Pope, and they weren't about to do that either. Um, <clears throat> but you know, what country goes out looking for for you know a state religion? I mean, come on. <laughs>
2: Well, again, you have to remember this is down, this is the uh, you, know, you know the tenth tenth century, uh, yeah. and um, it was something that would it would bind the people together. You know, this is one of the reasons that you know um, you, you do that. And there's some there's some sense that Vladimir the first he was trying to do that with the pagan religion, but it was it just wasn't it somehow wasn't workable. Um, and um, and, and the, other, the other side of it, of course Is that he wanted to marry into the Roman um, bloodline This is the other yeah. thing I mean, he, 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 uh, I mean the, <laughs> when the Russians and the, and, and the Byzantines first got together was, you know, the, the Russians invaded Constantinople And they, they plundered it and all that And then they did it again But the Byzantines were ready for them And they had this wonderful thing called Greek fire Which was this incendiary stuff that they would hurl and catapults at, at the, the Viking ships, and they would, it was a fire you couldn't put out. Even the water would burn. And so, yeah. all the, and then fi- finally, just as originally, you know, the original Slav people said, "Look, instead of you raiding us, why don't you live here? We'll take care of you." Um, uh, Constantine said said, "The Vikings, okay, let's let's make a deal here. You know, it's pointless <laughs> you coming here." And and, and um, part of this was like, uh, okay. Um, uh, the, the vladimir said uh, okay that 's fine. what I want to do is I want to marry into the royal you know into the Roman uh, bloodline here and this was something that wasn 't done uh, it was tried they tried to keep that pure you know so so it was, it was kind of born of the purple you know the royal blood sort of thing uh-huh. uh, but eventually they they decided okay, but they said okay, in order to, for you to do that, you have to convert and he said, all right, and so after, you know a year or two later he uh, he uh, was baptized and on, on the shores of the, of the Black Sea in, in Crimea. Uh, and this is why Crimea is a very important place for uh, contemporary Russia, for the, the Vladimir who's in power now, as is Kiev. This is the heart. You know, this is where, this is where Russia came from. Um, so it's understandable um, uh, that he would want to sort of regain that, uh, uh, you know, that, that heartland. And uh, that, that's, yeah, so then that's it. So then he... he was baptized, brought his bride back, Kiev, um, started building churches, started sending out emissaries. I mean, there were, there were missionaries already um, and um, before this. I mean, like you said, Olga had already converted. Uh, mm. And the whole story of the, of later of, of the missionaries of the Russian Orthodox Church, you know, once it got going, I mean, that, that's how Russia expanded. Um, it was this kind of colonization based on on, on the monks and them establishing monasteries to, stay, to, to get away from the cities, to have you know solitude, to, to meditate and um, you know, practice that spiritual life. They got away from the cities, went out to the wilderness, which was forest, not the desert. And they cleared the land, started a little settlement of their own. Other people came you know, to want to be with them, and then gradually another sort of town grew up, and then they... The monks who wanted solitude again <laughs> moved on. And so you had this kind of, you know, um, I said this kind of religious colonization. And there's a wonderful book by uh, 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 an American um, Russian historian uh, named James Billington, which is called The Icon and the Axe. And it's sort of have these these kind of frontier monks. You know, um, who they cleared the land with the axe and they set up the icon. You know, um, once it was cleared, and it's, it's uh, you know, it's uh, it's incredible, and you know, and that, that that's true of so many other you know places as well. I mean, you could sort of see that in the states and different ways, and Mormons and and and, and so on. But uh, again, for me, not knowing anything about it, it was just um, fascinating to to learn about this. Oh
1: yeah, <clears throat> yeah, and but, but you know, you, you some. They had this amazing power, and they they held their their power, you know, really by the sword, and and yet it it boggles my mind that, that for the most part they did things that were just not. I mean, I, I mean, because they had total power, they didn't really have advisors that could really advise them well. As like, like St. Petersburg, it was built on a marsh, and Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it, it 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 doesn't make sense except he wanted to have his um what his his um port so that that's where he yeah. built it. Yeah. I mean,
2: well, that was that, <clears throat> that was the thing. He needed they, they he knew that Russia needed a seaport because all the other sea access they have is frozen half the year, you know, up in the north. So he, he he needed a seaport, and uh, that's what I mean. It was sort of this was the modern world. This was like this was the West. This wasn't this wasn't an organic place like you know like Kiev originally or Moscow. You know it, it wasn't it didn't grow organically. It was just, it was built. It was decided. And sort of like Al, Al, you know Alexander the Great with Alexandria. I want a city. It's going to be like this. It's got to be here. And you know and both Alex, Alexander the Great and Peter the Great didn't see much of the. Cities named after them. Uh, they kind of laid the foundations, but you know they died before it was um, you know, than uh-huh. or finished. And then it was the ones who came after Anne, uh, Catherine the Great. They they beautified it. They imported these uh, Italian architects, um, Renaissance style, florid Baroque style, and all that. And so I mean St. Petersburg. I mean I, I'd love to go. I'd love, I'd love to go to Russia. I know, mean, let's go to both St. Petersburg, Moscow, um, Kiev. Uh, well, it's not Russia. It's Ukraine. But um, what I understand is this absolutely fantastic, you know, beautiful, strange city. And it, and, and it produced its own weird kind of culture, too. This is kind of dream St. Petersburg, where, you know, you have Dostoevsky you know, and Gogol and these other writers and poets writing about Pushkin, writing about this strange uh-huh. kind of... It, precisely, precisely because it, like, it shouldn't be... It's like Los Angeles. It shouldn't be there. You know, it's built on a desert. There's no <laughs> real water there. They have, to, they have to suck the water in from somewhere else. And uh, the opposite was in Saint Petersburg; it was a marsh. And so, but it, it, what he had in mind was uh, Amsterdam and places like that. You know, he wanted it, it, was, it, was, uh, it was everything in order, very you know mathematical, and and clean and spare and you know IKEA you know, kind of kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and and that, that's, that's, that's he, he wanted to westernize. He, and this is again this enormous effort to try and pull Russia out of the Middle Ages. Um, again, this is you know the early 1700s, but still, it's you know the rest of Europe has you know it's been through you know the, the new discoveries, Copernicus and Galileo and all that, and then you have and Newton, and then over in Russia they're still back in, in sort of the Middle Ages, and they're, they're not really aware of all that. And Peter the Great, you know, tried to you know pull that in, and um. um how successful it was, that's, that's part of the polarities going on in, in the Russian soul. They're, they're torn between these two sort of sides. and Sometimes it achieves a, a balance, a harmony, or, or that's uh-huh. the aim, but often it's a kind of struggle and confusion and, and battle.
1: It really feels like they haven't had the opportunity until now, till recently, to build a social structure of any sort. It was either you were the very low or the very high, and the middle ground seems to have been missing and and that transition is where culture and poetry and and everything else seem to flourish and when you When you take the middle section out, um there's no growth there there's outrageous Point control and people you know.
2: Well I think that's the thing, as you say i think in, in, in recent times that that's what's happened there There has been a kind of middle class um because of course, I know there's lots of people that are you know uh, disenfranchised and 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 um and all that just like in other parts of the world but again, my general impression is that the standard of living as a whole has gone up, and so you do have a kind of middle middle uh class and um you know, yeah, you're right. That's where you know. I mean, you have the Well, you don't really have an aristocracy there anymore. I, I guess you. I guess maybe the, you know, the the oligarchs are, you know, kind uh-huh. of the very rich, the super super rich. Um. But it's um. I mean, I, I again I, I I'm. I'm not a sort of Russian expert, so I don't really know about you know contemporary social conditions exactly but my impression as I said it's sort of better um, than it's been in a while and that's why people are a, a lot of people don't mind eh, let's say not having exactly the same kind of civil liberties and, and rights or whatever it is that uh, we don't mind that okay yeah we, we, we know that most of the stuff we've seen on television or, on, or here on the news and the newspapers is something that's controlled and sent to us by the government but you know many people in the West think that's the case here anyway I mean you yeah. know, um, i mean I mean god i mean especially now these days i mean in the last uh, ten years or certainly in in the last you know four years, the whole notion of post truth and alternative fact and who do you believe and, you know it's just like yeah. you know the lying the lying press and all that's like well God, who knows anymore you know who who knows so, oh gosh gotcha. the whole notion that but- well I think the the notion that there's some kind of Freedom more freedom x kind of freedom in in the West than in Russia might not you know, might not really hold up under on, on scrutiny i don't, I don't know I'm just saying it might not
1: Well, you made one comment that I found really fascinating is that they didn't really look to the future they were more into the here and the now
2: um, well it depends depends when you you know what, what, what time you mean you know I mean there's was different idea- i mean i guess the whole Christian notion of some second coming of Christ, that was a kind of future, not like, not like yeah. our sense of the future, the Western sense of the future, which is basically based on technology and, and improving standards of living, which, I have to say, you know, I'm, the way I live now, and I'm a you know, struggling writer, um, I live enormously better than anybody did in the 19th century. So, I mean, the standards oh, of yeah. living are pretty, pretty high for most of us, I, I would say, not to say people aren't suffering, of course they are. Um,
1: but but it-
0: but, uh, but again, you have to look. I mean, way, at, you, have to,
1: you have to look at the 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 um, the, the weather and and the land. I mean, <laughs> it, it's harsh. It, the, the struggle mm. for survival was was profound, and and mm, you know, again, today not the same. But but I would think the sixteen, seventeen hundreds, um, it, it was it was a, har, it, it, a harsh land to live in.
2: Uh, well i'm saying that, yeah it uh, and again some you know people uh can trace back certain characteristics of say the Russian soul back to things of that sort and there's a kind of uh i mean it, it it's it's uh, again it's it's paradoxical because you have at one one side of it a kind of um what should you say it uh a less sensitivity to um kind of uh i don't know um, health and all that and being worried about that kind of thing that the West might, oh, you know, I'm cold or whatever it is, that kind of thing. And at the same time, there's a tremendous sense of of, of um, brotherhood. And I mean, one of the distinctions uh-huh. is the West is me and the West is me and Russia is we. You know, so the West has a uh-huh. me sensibility. What, what's in it for me? You know, uh, Everyone's an individual. Everybody's out for themselves. And according to laissez-faire, market if we all pursue our self interests in the long run everything will work out okay and you know the uh the, the fundamentally there will be the, the greatest good for the greatest number and all that and traditionally what russian sensibility is that no they think of the we us everyone together so there's less sense of a unique personal identity uh more of a sense of a togetherness and uh, which makes sense precisely because you're saying in this harsh climate you know, if, if you're by yourself shivering in, in a hovel somewhere, uh, you're going to be colder than if you're you're huddling with, you know, some others in uh, some other, you know, in um, some group. And there's this notion that the uh, Russian philosopher Nicholas Berdayev uh, writes about in most of his books, and he was one of the ones that was sent off on the philosophy steamers, you know, that Lenin sent them out on. <laughs> it's this idea of what he calls Sobornost, Sobernos means sort of a gathering, but it also means the church where people gather. And again, here, so the, the social aspect of the religion—it's a, it's a place where people gather. And there were, there were all these kinds of uh, stories of—I um, forget off the top of my head what they're called—but there were these kind of churches that people put up in one day. They, 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 they would kind of quickly put together a kind of you know church out of wood or something, and then they would be able to gather in that church. So this was. Again, the West just doesn't really have that sensibility. You know, we talk about community and reaching out, and you know, all that. That's your friends and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, we talk about the community, but that, you know, I mean, sad to say, you know, the community is something that's important to people that are, uh, in a, more times than not in a less secure economic, you know, place in the society, and so they need the community in the way that people that are more economically secure don't need it. And they can go on, go on their own and that kind of thing. But um, this is something that was, as I said before, you know, the, the Russian sensibility thinks of we. And another distinction, and this comes from this German philosopher-historian named Oswald Spengler, who wrote this remarkable book um, called The Decline of the West, where he spells out this notion that, that the West is going under. He has this organic vision of history where civilizations, you know, they're born, they grow, they reach maturity, then they start to decline and, you know, they die, he, he thought the West is in his sunset years. But he said in the West, people look up. You know, they look up and he, he sort of pointed to the Gothic cathedrals and it's a sense of a, of a kind of eye an ego that looks up into the sky and sees God up there. But the Russians look out. They look out into the horizon. And if you think about, you know, the vast plains, the steppes, um, you know, uh, the tundra <laughs> here in Siberia, yeah. there's this notion of endless hor- endless horizons and uh, it makes sense you know and and that, out of that you know if you're looking out you open up your arms you can you can embrace your brothers and you're all part of this huge family and all that kind of thing and this is why so many people felt this empathy with the, the plight of the serfs and they came as you said mostly from middle class the ones who were really worried about the serfs were people from middle class families or the intelligentsia you know who, who just were Educated enough to recognize that something had to be done. Um, they, they didn't naturally fit in that world. They had to go out of their way to go join that world. And often the serfs didn't care for them because they just thought they were these you know, uh, urbanites who didn't really understand things. And so, I mean, in many ways, it was sort of like the intelligentsia wanted to save the serfs in spite of themselves. Um, yeah. But again, it's this notion and, and, of this notion of the brotherhood, you know, the brotherhood, everyone reaching out, and you can see this in people like Madame Blavatsky, who was very interested in, in, in the theosophical side of, of creating a kind of brotherhood of man.
1: Mm. Uh-huh. Oh, absolutely. And you know, you look at it today, and you think, you know, what a struggle to to try to change something that is almost in your DNA. And, and to to open those doors to um, a lot of the spiritual stuff. I, I, I think that that was the other thing that I found fascinating how how they are really the Russian government even today is using um, psychic stuff and remote viewing and things like that. And our government is too, but they won't talk about it. but but Russia seems a lot more open to those kind of... Um, tools that that, hmm. that had been developed earlier and then had been shoved down into the closet or the basement or wherever, because you know certainly.
2: Oh. Yeah. No, no. I was going to say it's true. It's, no, you, you know, you're right. I mean, um, the, the well, throughout pretty much throughout the Soviet time, there was a lot of at, at different levels and you know at different degrees. Um, interest in parapsychology, the paranormal. I mean, one of the stories I tell is about how, um, in the 1920s, you know, figures in the intelligence agencies in in the early Soviet Union were very interested in this notion of going to Tibet and um, learning sort of Buddhist methods of achieving kind of inner harmony, and this would be a way to spread the kind of Inner in harmony among all the comrades, uh, uh-huh. and also because well, the people interested in this they they what well, well they were very saddened to see in many ways what started out as a for them a kind of noble experiment and attempt and had you know sort of degenerated into kind of a kind of free for all. Sadly, what happened <laughs> in these kind of situations is yeah in the early ages okay the early stages you're you're throwing off the repressors and then the, another level of Oppression sets in from the revolution itself. You know, you have the authority figures come in, and so they were. They, these were these were I, I, these are real idealist Bolsheviks who wanted to um, incorporate some more spiritual ideas, which would be able to create a true harmony among the comrades. And then at the same time, they believed that the, the Tibetans had this kind of super science. Um, you know, these kind of knowledge of, of higher powers and forces that also could be used. And I mean, one of the Main literary figures or one of the main promoters or revolutionary characters, Maxim Gorky, is um, kind of uh, uh, he's, he's not quite, but he's sort of like a Jack London of, of, of Russia, not quite, but sort of in that same kind of um, um, real life, you know, uh, ballpark. But he was very interested in telepathy and mental science and the whole idea that you could you could transmit, you can transmit the you know the messages of the new. The new regime, the new world, create the new the new being, you know, the new the new soul that would that would. Uh, I mean, it, the, the whole idea, in many ways, both the West and Russia share the same idea about the human psychology: is that we're all blank slates. There's nothing in the mind that not isn't doesn't first get there through the senses. You know, we're born we're completely blank. and the whole idea is, if you create the right conditions around everybody, you can you can make you know perfect citizens in some way. So. Um, at the time, when Gorky, you know, Gorky, this is 1920s and all that. He, he, you know, he was saying, okay, we can imprint, you know, um, this this kind of message through these parapsychological, you know, methods. And you know, there were very important prestigious scientists in Russia who were studying this kind of thing. Um, and probably, well, you know, I mean, today it's out in the open. You know, it's, it's, it's um, you know, it's, it's uh, you know. It's not it's not hidden in any way whatsoever. But but during the the Soviet time, it was something that you know they kind of kept hush hush.
1: Um, and like you well, said, in
2: the States as well.
1: Look at Rasputin. I mean, he did healing, yeah. distant healing, actually. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Oh no, 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 no. He, well, he's he's, he's yeah, again, he's somebody who's a lot of legends have grown up around him. And um, but yeah, no, he yeah he was a healer, natural healer. He had remarkable sort of. Theergic powers, which I guess is a technical magical term for, for the healing powers. And he's one of these contradictory um, personalities. You know, he's known as the holy devil. You know, he was very, very religious, very spiritual. Uh, he walked hundreds of miles to go from his hometown up in Siberia down to Mount Athos in Greece. Um, you know, to go to the monasteries there. He walked. Again, he walked. You know, that's how the got around. You know, he, he walked from Siberia down to the Holy Land, you know, um, and then back. And but at the same time, he, he liked his drink, he liked his sex, he liked his parties and all this sort of thing. And um, you know, he was drawn into the, to the world of the Romanovs um, through a friend of uh, Alexandria, uh, uh, who is, uh, he, again, he's, he's the most well-known, but at the same time, you have all these people in the background. There's so many different figures in the background. Oh, yeah. Big uh, and brother, uh, Philippe, and they're all different sort of Tibetan doctors. And so, you know, like today, it, 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 it's similar. I mean, we, we, think, we think interest in sort of magic and mystical things and that sort of stuff started sometime in the 60s, but it became very, very popular then, and the most famous people in the world, like the Beatles, were into it, but it's always been around in different in different forms, and the Russian court was someplace where there was lots and lots of that. Freemasonry was something that was very, very important um, uh-huh. at different times in Russia as well. So, uh, I mean, you could do a whole book on the, the you know, Masonic influence in, in Russia. I mean, I, I, I touch on it in my book and talk about some of the main characters, but you could do a whole other book just about that. Yeah,
1: and a number of the um, the higher echelons, or the Kaisers, were um, involved in, in something similar to Freemasonry, if not Freemasonry. Um, I mean, it, it's, it's amazing. It, it's sort of like, you know, uh, some things will grow in certain cultures and certain environments, and so, some things won't. And you look at Russia and, and you, you see that, that it was seeded with a lot of amazing stuff that didn't seem to flourish. It was just not the right time for it, and, and you know I can see how Russia could become um, a a place for amazing growth mm-hmm. with with the spirituality and the esoteric sciences coming in with the the scientific sciences and creating a culture that that is that is rich beyond belief.
2: Well, let's hope. Yeah, let's hope it's something we can all we can all share and 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 benefit by. And uh, I mean, whatever Vladimir Putin's intentions are by um, sort of associating himself with, with with these philosophers from the Silver Age and all of that. And uh, you know, I mean, that's one of the points I make in the, the book. At the end of the book was that I, I think, I mean, whatever political reasons he has for. Um, Mentioning these people and telling his regional governors to read them, that shouldn't put us off from trying to understand them ourselves and I think if oh, we yeah. do we'll see that we'll see that they have much to offer and they're offering to us now the same thing they offered hundred years ago, but they were, you know it was aborted, but we need it even more now and it's this kind of um, it's, 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 it's a way of Looking at the world and engaging with the world that, that tries to adjust the imbalance of the West, which is, say, material. It's, it's reductive. Um, I mean, socially, it's about me. That it's what I call the me economy. Uh, but in in general, kind of view of the world, it it that's why I say you know, uh, part of the subtitle is the struggle for the soul of the world. It is about the soul. I mean, what what Russian philosophy had. It was something that the West had and it didn't want, which was the soul, the whole idea of the soul, the whole idea of uh-huh. you know, our, our, our inwardness, our, our subjectivity, is, is not just being a little puddle of consciousness inside each of our skulls, unconnected to the world, but it's actually part of, part of the inner life, the inner being of, of, of reality in the world. And this was, it's not something you can map out in science. It's not something you can um, put on a grid. It's not something you can quantify but it's something that you can feel and, and, and you can grasp and, and, and you can sort of suggest and so on and so on. And art is one of the ways of doing that. And there's a peculiar kind of philosophy that, that grew up in, in Russia. I mean, once it started going, I mean, it's not really until the late 19th century that you get like a real Russian philosophy. Uh, you have a lot of social thinkers and moralists and writers before them, but the idea of, you know, sort of Russian doing, you know, using sort of the the, the, the terms and, and, and the concepts of Western philosophy um gets going then and it's it's absolutely centered on meaning. What's the meaning of life? What's our purpose for living? And you have sure. you have the great you have great figures you have great figures like, you know, the novelist Leo Tolstoy, who you know um, he was just considered, you know, the the, the great novelist of the nineteenth century, War and Peace, Anna Karenina. But he became so obsessed with religious questions, questions of meaning and purpose, what we would call existential questions, because the church doesn't really apply itself to them anymore. And you know, but you know, why why do I exist? What's the meaning of my life? I'm going to die. What's the what's the point of everything? And he became so obsessed with that that he rejected all of his previous art and he went out on a kind of religious pilgrimage. And this is something that other uh, Russian writers did as well. Nikolai Gogol who's one of the uh, main ones who did that. And this is something that the West didn't quite, you know, they couldn't quite, it's so intense. I mean, one of the stories I tell is um, about um, Dostoevsky, you know, his his novel, Crime and Punishment. I mean, uh, Dostoevsky, I mean, you talk about Tolstoy. Tolstoy is a model of kind of, you know, Homeric uh, objectivity and detachment compared to Dostoevsky, who's this quivering, kind of shaking, you know, uh, hysterical character, who's absolutely obsessed with questions of meaning and purpose, and why do I exist, and is, is, is does God exist and is anything true and all this kind of thing and um, you have people like Robert Louis Stevenson um, reading you know Crime and Punishment and saying he couldn't finish it because it was just too intense for him. So the West didn't. I mean, Robert Louis Stevenson he he knew all about the evil of the soul. I mean, he, he, you know, he wrote Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde, so he knew all about you know our other half, our other shadow side. But those guests were so intense about it that. You know, the Westerners just couldn't handle it in many ways, and th- th- this is this kind of eruption of, of Russian literature and spirituality and and and, and you know, thought um, at the end of the 19th century uh, that just uh, overwhelmed you know, um, the West when when um, they they knew of it.
1: Yeah, it 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 really well. It is intense, but you know, there is there is such a, a richness and a spirit. To the Russian culture, that that is profound, and it's there. You can you can see it and you can feel it in in a lot of the material that I've that I've read from that particular time frame. So that so that y- you know it, it, it's it's sad that they got rid of all their philosophers, but but they <laughs> and, and they got rid of. It, it, well, it, they got rid of the books too, but I, I, I know they're coming back and they're they're being reintegrated into the into the society. But uh, you know, you've got you've got fertile territory now there for for Putin because there is a middle class, there is a group of people that are going to want to stretch beyond um, beyond the the restrictions that has been put on the population for so long, so that so that there is great potential. For that that growth, uh, I'm surprised he hasn't made it required reading in the schools too. To be honest with you,
2: <laughs> well, he's, he's made some things required reading in the schools. I mean, he you know he's very again again. I'm not an expert. This is just what I've I've gathered doing the research for for the book. But um, I mean, there's. He 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 sort of put in a demand that be like one history. There's one history book. There's this history book. There's that. And so so again, it's this whole thing that you know it's this, it's this um, trying to heal this identity crisis. Who, who, who are we? And again, this is something that runs throughout um, Russian history. Uh, this um, question of who 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 are we? Who are we? Like you said, you know there's so many things in the mix. The last thing they were were these communists, but then that that's collapsed, so we don't know who we are anymore. So he's trying to, understandably, give them a sense of identity, um, putting them in touch with you know some part of their past that had been. I mean, I mean, you know, I mean, again, for people that were born in the late 80s, 90s, this you know the Soviet era was, was the past. They don't they don't they they weren't born in it, so they, they, they don't know that you know, immediately, they they know this new Russia. And one of the interesting things is that, you know, again, um, Russia is, this is the first time it's not an empire. throughout all its history, in one form or another, it's it's been a kind of empire. It's a separatist Uh country. (laughs) You know, which is not, you know, it's not the same, it's not the same thing. There was Russia, but then it extended out. That's why he's interested in Ukraine and all the other areas and all that. And this whole, this Eurasian idea is, an attempt to create a kind of umbrella identity that will incorporate, you know, these lands that used to belong to the Soviet Union and now they'll they'll be part of this new entity that's growing up. So, I mean, yeah, you know, I've um, I, I've had some response from people, you know, just online and and because of doing talks like this and interviews and um, you know posting things about the book and some Russian people get in touch and say oh, this is fantastic and you know, guy, you know, we want to translate it and. Get it translated into Russian and all this sort of thing, and um, yeah, you know, it's. Um, but as we said, you know, he recently changed their constitution so that he could he can be empowered uh, sort of indefinitely. So, um, yeah, you know, I mean, let's hope there's collateral benefit from that. <laughs> it, it, it might it <laughs> might not be might not be something desirable to have someone in power for that long, but perhaps there might be some benefit, you know, that that can accrue on, on the sideline
1: of, of that. Well, at least he doesn't have to worry about being poisoned or shot. Well, any more so well, than normal. I
2: don't know. You know? I mean, I, I think that's one of the things, as far as I understand it. It's like, okay, I, I have to find somebody who's going to take care of me once I'm out of office. And, again, this is the story, as I understand <laughs> it. He, 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 he took care of Yeltsin. You know, he, they, they pulled him in. I mean, again, it's, it's yeah. one of these funny things. I mean, because the book I did before this, which is about uh, Trump, Called Dark Star Rising, Magic in Politics in the Age of Trump, and it's about this kind of resurgence of a kind of occult politics that that seemed to grow up around around Trump's election and all that. But uh, I mean, Trump was a reality TV star, you know, for many years before he became president. I mean, Putin wasn't yeah. that. But when they were looking for a successor to Yeltsin, they actually sent you know out to the Russian people a kind of questionnaire, a poll, and you know who <laughs> who. What kind of person would you like to be the next president? <laughs> and I, I've I've, ne- I've never seen it. I've, I I know I I've never seen it, but apparently there was um, a very popular TV show um, in Russia in the 70s. Um, God, I, I think seven 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 something of a spring. I, I can't remember the title right now, but the it was about a Russian secret agent during World War II, you know, who was stationed in, in Germany. And apparently the character in that. TV show, uh, got the most votes from the population about, you know, the person they would like to be president, like somebody like him. And Putin himself, you know, he was in the KGB. So looking at all these different people, he said, oh, he, he kind of fits that bill. And so he was uh, groomed, you know, to take over. Uh, and, you know, he, he, he took a short break when, um, you know, he, he, he dropped out and he wasn't, he was prime minister for a while and not president. But, um, I mean, again, as far as I understand from some conversations and correspondence I've had with people that are more politically savvy than I, the kind of situation is not not too different, I, I would say, maybe from a, from a mafia kind of situation where, you know, the, the Don wants to kind of retire, but he has to set up somebody who will take care of him. Because you make enemies along the way, right? You know, whether you want to or not. Oh, yeah. So,
1: well, you know, he's so envisioning... He's envisioning um, a civilization that is Eurasian, which implies a country that would incorporate Europe and Asia. Hmm. Is this working towards a new world order?
2: Well, that's well, I, well at least a new a new civilization growing up again with this idea that civilizations are organic. They're born, they grow, they reach a maturity, they they ripen, and then they. UK and dies, and um, the West has been on its way out for the last century. I mean, it's not. It's, I mean, 20th century was the American century. It's not sort of the American century anymore. Even just Trump saying America first now. You know, we're we're not. We're pulling back from being the policeman of the world. You know, yeah. kind of thing. Uh, so, uh, so this is what this is. The, this is this idea that Eurasia is going to rise up in the 21st century. It's going it's to. And again, it's breaking away from. I mean, one of the. How should we say it? Um, one of the ideas informing Putin is this notion that, oh, the West believes it's triumph. It's the end of history because free market, you know, laissez-faire economics and democracy and other Western goods have have spread throughout the whole planet, and. Um, we, 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 there's no question that Western liberalism is the best or the optimum on the political and social um, vision of things. And uh-huh. what Putin's saying is no, it's, it's not. There's another vision of things. This is this notion of traditional values. And, you know, it's, it's not Western liberal. It's not democratic. It's authoritarian. It's hierarchical. Uh, you don't have, you know, uh, this very uh, flexible uh, Sort of idea about you know um, gender roles or you know roles of the sexes and things like that. So it's it's it, you know from from a Western from a contemporary Western point of view, a great deal of Putin's point of view about traditional values seem very repressive. You know, women stay at home and they're pregnant, <laughs> and, you know, all, all that kind of thing. Uh, but it's like in the West, from their perspective, it's just turned into this mess with everybody just pursuing what they want. You know, uh, all these different pressure groups. Special interest groups, you know, competing, trying to get ahead of all the other ones, jockey, jockeying for position and, you know, and, and promoting different agendas. And he's saying this is the fracturing, this is the kind of you know decay of the West now. It's breaking up into all these kinds of things. The liberalism has finally you know, reached its end. It's because there's nothing left. There's nothing left to liberate anyone from. Everyone's liberated well, and everything. there's
1: something to be said for that too.
2: Well, um, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm not saying it's good or bad i'm just saying this is this is how i understand this sensibility and what in, in opposition to that is the notion of no here's traditional values the family you know traditional gender roles father mother all of that and um you know we, we you know we, we know that putin isn't you know particularly fond of you know the lbgt uh, world and all that kind of thing and it's not something that's uh and feminism, and all, all the sorts of things that in the progressive West, you know, we're, we're really concerned about, and seems to have taken over, seems to have taken prominence over everything else, and you can say this is one of the reasons why a lot of people flocked to Trump in the States, because they know, they didn't feel like the progressive sensibilities were speaking to them anymore, they were all involved uh-huh. in these very unique, niche um, kind of groups, and, you know, they didn't, they didn't talk to the a traditional blue-collar worker anymore, and Trump seems to be talking to that. So, in, in, a, in a different way, in, in, in Russia, this seems to be what Putin's doing. He's, you know, he's, he's promoting that kind of sensibility in opposition to a West that is just, for him, is you know, it's just turned into anything goes.
1: Well, I would say that in the West here, that that we are fragmented tremendously, and and. Mm. Russia is not, and there is greater strength um, with with the way Russia is going at this point in time. And you know, please, you know, don't. I'm not gonna. Ab- I'm not gonna suddenly move. Well, to I mean, you
2: sound you sound very you sound very pro-Russian, though. I
1: I well, <laughs> no, boy, I am because it, it, well, it, it's your fault um, <laughs> because that's good. I. I never really understood where Russia was coming from. The people, forget the government. I never understood where the yeah, people yeah, yeah. were coming from. And, and so, when well, you understand where the, where the people are coming from, it makes a lot of sense.
2: Well, I mean, one of the things I talk about in the book is that um, in the late 80s, early 90s, there was a kind of cultural exchange program between uh, the Esalen Institute in um, California, this is famous uh-huh. um, alternative, you know, kind of counterculture place on the Big Sur coastline. Goes back to the 1960s, but they, they were running this kind of cultural exchange thing uh, with with Russia and there's something called Skylink, which at one point, um, it's, again, the Cold War was still going on. This is just, just on the cusp before Perestroika. Uh, and, 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 and so on, um, that um, uh, they they did a kind of you know, satellite link with, uh, with without the governments involved private citizens California and i guess moscow i 'm not quite sure exactly where, but uh, they were able to communicate that way and um, and they were very interested in the people, uh, Michael Murphy and others who were um, some of the founders of Eslin and, and, and running the thing, they made trips to Russia and they said they met all these people that they're interested in the same things we're interested in, interested in, you know, yeah. uh, mysticism, meditation, yoga, all this kind of stuff. And, and actually they have this whole culture behind them of these kind of, you know, these kinds of practices, which were, you know, frowned upon in the West and, you know, they came, they became popular in the sixties, but, these sorts of things go back in these people's culture for a long ways, and um, there's this, a saying, you know, if you scratch a Russian, you'll find a mystic. Uh, and um, so, yeah, I mean, that, that, that's there. And uh, again, I, I didn't set out wanting to do this. I just became fascinated with it. But I, I'd be very happy if people read the book and they said, you know what, I didn't know anything about this. This has changed my view of this, or even I didn't, I didn't even have a view of it, but now I do. And I'd like to know more, you know. Uh, I mean, you might not be able to go there. Who knows when we able to travel? We can certainly try and read some of the people um, and uh, get a different idea because, I mean, again, you know, we grew up at a certain time and certain sensibilities. And, you know, Russia, for me, when I was a kid, was just the Commissar, you know, over uh, in, in Moscow. And, um, you know, the Ruskies and all the spy films and James Bond was finding them and things like that. And, and later on, I discovered, oh, this whole this other... This whole other world there, you know, that I, I I didn't know anything about.
1: Well, yeah, that's where I came from. I mean, it was it was like first of all, I loved the history part of it. I mean, every time you turned around, they were being you know overwhelmed by somebody else, and and their philosophies were being poured on top of them. And it's kind of like you know, what religion are we today, or what do we believe in today, and and you know now you you've got you've got people who have been and and are educated, and can think. And you know hmm. originally the serfs weren't thinking; they were just trying to survive. Uh, so. Well,
2: yeah. Well, I think you're right.
1: No, I mean, it's, I mean, oh. I, I, again,
2: it's sort of the thing. They they were completely they weren't they didn't have any kind of access to anything anything like that. You know, they were. Um, they, didn't, they had no idea of any kind of world beyond sort of the you know the limits of the farm they worked on or the village they lived in.
1: Well, and and even when they were set free or limit or 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 sort of sort of set free, um, they didn't like it. Nor did the landowners. I mean, they they were very unhappy with being given that freedom. It was not something they they asked for actually.
2: Well, again, this is something again that's supposed to be part of the Russian soul. I mean, they're um, if they have freedom, they kind of either they go crazy with it or they don't know what to do with it, and they need something to give them order. And this, again, this is you know one of the, uh, the, the these are. Certain, I mean, if, if you know your if you know Russian literature, you know these are themes that are worked out in different ways. I mean, uh, um, Dostoevsky's Masterpiece of last novel, the Brothers Karamazov, you know, is about you know dissecting the Russian soul. And there's three different you know brothers that represent well, fundamentally, the the body, the intellect, and, and the emotions, for the soul, and they you know they, it's how they deal with life in different ways. And these are all parts of the the, the real Russian soul has all of those things. And as I said sometimes they reach a um, incredible harmony and balance, and there's some magic that happens then. And then there's times when they're just at war and they're fighting this, 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 you know, I mean, again, I keep going back to Dostoevsky, but he's like the most um, intense sensitive antennae of, of this um, sort of thing. And he, he's just um, incredibly sensitive to these um, these struggles and all that. Um, and the idea from a lot of people said Steiner and others. Somebody else I talk about in the book in the early part of the book is the German uh, novelist Hermann Hesse, who, um I don't know how much he's read these days, but again when I was a teenager in the early seventies, I was part of this huge Hesse um phenomena where you know his novels uh-huh. sit out there and stuff and more read by everybody. But he, he, he talks about this character called Russian man. And it said it's this, this incredibly Capacious soul that's able to hold in itself all these warring kind of opposites, and that that enabled it to that 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 kind of uncertainty, the, the kind of turmoil that was held in the Russian soul, uh, was dangerous. The, the, the West was afraid of it, rightly so. At the same time, but hesse it, it held the promise of something new. Something could come out of that. And uh, I mean, you know. I, will something come out of Russia today? I, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I, I, I don't know in that way. It's like um, things are much more politicized, I would say, today than they were at the time when Hester was writing about this or Steiner is giving his lectures about the Russian soul. Again, this is the early, early 20th century. Um, uh-huh. Not to say it wasn't politicized then, but it, it was sort of couched in a more cultural kind of thing. So I don't know about today. I mean, I, I I suspect there's a lot of turmoil and and um, you know uncertainty in Russians themselves. There, you know, um, they, perhaps they're living under better you know standard living conditions than they have had been early in their history. But I'm sure they're faced with the same kind of existential crises that their, their ancestors were faced with. Absolutely.
1: You know, I I was looking at the array of books that you've written, and, you know, it, it, it's eclectic to say the very least. And what was it that drew you to this topic?
2: Well, I mean, I, I came to write this book because um, the previous book I wrote, um, Dark Star Rising, which was, it's most, again, mostly about this kind of, well, it was about this occult politics that seemed to be gathering around Trump and then
0: uh-huh. some
2: of the figures involved in that were involved in Russia as well so I have a chapter in that book about um, well it, it was about things happening in Russia mostly and the rise of this Eurasian idea and also um, the what Russia was like under uh, Putin's PR man a guy named Vladislav Surkov um, and yeah, you know, I said before that you know most Russians they they know that the government controls the information they get. You know, so what's on TV, what's in the news, and so on, uh, is kind of made for And Serkov was at the helm of that for a good decade. And if if we think about Trump as being a kind of reality TV president, uh, Putin had a whole uh, television station, had a whole studio based on that, and so fellow Serkov was kind of creating reality for the Russian people. And it was what he called managed democracy, and the notion was to give the appearance of democracy while still having an authoritarian control. So, one of the so, give an example of something Surkov would do was that he he, he, he would um, he would broadcast these kind of t- political debates, and he would have you know figures voicing you know criticisms about the government and Putin and all that. But these are all kind of invented political parties; they didn't really exist. It made for good television. It looked like a really heated debate, but at the end of the day, it was all scripted. So it wasn't a real debate about you know between real political parties. It was a kind of show, but it gave the appearance of that. And many other things were like that. And so, um, uh, and in the midst of that, one of the characters who, uh, because from what I read, I mean, Russian television. You think about the things I don't. I don't know in the states, but here, you know, the stuff you see on TV here, you know, my God uh anything to entertain but there it seemed to be they just went over the top there's a there's a fellow named peter pomerantsov who's a journalist so he worked in media in russia and um there's a book called something like um something like uh, everything is possible nothing is true or something along those lines and basically they were giving carte blanche saying just invent anything you want come up with come up with just as long as it's entertaining and it's, and they were just able to do incredible kinds of things but you know it was in a certain kind of control there were certain limits, there were boundaries, but you, within those boundaries, you could do whatever you want. And so this was this strange virtual reality world that you know uh, many Russian people, well, I suspect, is still the case to a great degree. You know we're, we're living in. And one of the figures that emerged in this was this strange guy named Alexander Dugin, um, who is uh, one of the weirdest trajectories in you know modern politics. He started out in the 1980s as a kind of anti-Soviet punk. He got arrested for singing an anti-Soviet song, you know, at a party. But now, I I don't know if it's still the case, but uh, 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 not too long ago, if if he's not still doing it, he was lecturing on geopolitics to the general staff of the Kremlin. So he went from being, (laughs) like, (laughs) out on the fringe, strange, radical character, and through a series of strange political quick change, you know, artist uh, routines, where he adopted different political at different times, he's, he's become this kind of weird mainstream figure. I mean, he's, he's out there. He's got, he's got very radical ideas. He's, he's a big proponent of the Eurasian idea, and he's a big proponent of the notion that there has to be some final knockdown, you know, drag-out battle between the East and the West, what he calls the Eurasianists and the Atlanticists. The Atlanticists are all the seafaring, mercantile nations. Uh, so that would be, you know, the, the forces of the West behind globalization, um, you know wanting to turn the world into a global marketplace and all that if it isn't that already and so he sees this wow. final battle and some of his ideas have informed some of some of well certainly some of the stuff that Putin was up to in Ukraine and Crimea back you know in two thousand thirteen and fourteen some with his I, this guy Dugan's ideas about the Eurasia informed, you know Putin's um, excursions into uh, Ukraine and Crimea and reason he's in the book is also because he, he's a figure associated with the alt-right uh, they're not they're not in the news as much anymore but you know if you remember back when Trump's election, richard spencer and the alt-right there was this kind of new conservative highly conservative far-right counterculture that was going up around trump and all that and they you know they claim to have helped trump get elected and steve bannon was you know uh, sort of advocate of theirs and and so on, and so Dugan is one of these characters that's part of that that posse, as it were. And so I'd written that, and I thought there's just a lot more there and um, So I had an idea for a follow-up to the Trump book, based on this, and then, as I said, when I heard all the stuff about um, Putin making these reading suggestions to his regional governors about these philosophers in the Silver Age, who I knew, or these books I read. I thought that's fascinating. So, oh, okay. What was? I mean, originally I was going to do a book about Eurasia. And the joke I tell is the original title was Eurasia Dawn, but I thought that was, that sounded too much like the name of an exotic dancer. So uh-huh. I I, uh, I changed it to you know this whole notion of holy Russia. So I mean, there's obviously the stuff about Eurasia in the book, but it sort of shifted more to you know why is Russia holy and why is Putin interested in, in regaining this 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 notion of Holy Russia, and what does that mean for us today? Because again, I, what I would hate to happen is people to ignore the ideas of some of these philosophers from the Silver Age, because Putin is reading them. Uh, because whether he's reading them or not, they're worth they're worth knowing about, and I think they're very important, you know, to us today. They they, they they deal they deal with the imbalance that the West has been suffering from for many years now. You know, we're, we're, we're hypertrophied in our intellect and Scientific detachment and you know from from the world and just increasingly losing any kind of sense of any inwardness and and soul of things and all that you know in a variety of ways whether it's our uh, abuse of nature and rampant uh, o- overuse of natural resources or, um, um, uh, or or turning that kind of sensibility on ourselves you know you know we, we, we increasingly I mean, of course, there's a whole subculture of people that are pursuing it in just all the ways, in different ways. But in general, in general, um, you know, we, we we look to science for the answers. We don't look to philosophers. We don't look to poets. We certainly don't look to religious mystics for any kind of answers to who we are and what we're supposed to do in this world. But now we're faced with you know, we're faced with a variety of global crises, which many of which are born out of the kind of basically the metaphysics the West has been working under for the last few centuries, which is one that has excluded any kind of inwardness to the world itself. It's excluded any kind of soul to the world, the planet earth itself. And uh, among other things, this is something that these Russian thinkers in the silver age did believe in, and and did feel that there was a way to, you know, we we didn't have to give up necessarily all the progress that, you know, we've created you know, through science, but at the same time, you know, um, we, you know, we we do need to be able to regain this notion of the, the world having a kind of soul. And again, this is, you know, hundred years ago. So this is before all of our concern about climate change and all that kind of thing. And, and then here we are today, face, facing crises even worse than those that um, were, uh, you know, confronting us Hundred years ago, so we need. We need. I, I'm not saying people have all the answers, but they certainly have something that can help us uh, uh, look towards
1: one. Well, I mean, there's value in every culture. There's value in every country, and there are philosophers all over the place, and it it adds a great richness to the culture if if people are aware of it and listen to it. I mean, it it just it makes you open yourself up more to another level of consciousness that's out there, and and it it is important for all of us to stretch into that area or aspect of our of our consciousnesses as, as well. And it feels as though at, at least Putin's trying to get it into the you know all right to the leaders. I mean, but. But even in our schools today, our colleges, they don't go into this kind of yeah. philosophy. It's, it's negated. Yeah.
2: Well, that's the thing. I mean, this is, uh, one of the things I say towards the end of the book is that what Russia had to offer the West 100 years ago, well, more than 100 years ago with the, the Silver Age thinkers, was something that the West had itself, but it rejected. And this was this kind of sensibility that rose up in the time after the Enlightenment, which you know we know is the Romantic movement, um, the Enlightenment you know set set the, the foundation for science today. Uh, I, I don't have to go into any great detail to um, you know uh, uh, recount all of the good things that have come to us through that. I mean, uh, you know, we're able to have this conversation now because of that, and so many other things. Of course, you know, without doubt, you know, we've benefited amazingly from the rise of. Science and all that, but it's also it excluded some things. It excluded some things that are very important for our, our well-being, not only physical well-being, but our spiritual well-being, or psychical well-being, our, our wholeness. And um, this was something that the Romantic movement, different philosophers from that time, they 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 recognized were you know were very important. You know, in the West, were people like the English poet William Blake or. Germany, the German poet, who was also a scientist and a statesman, um, um, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, and many others. And again, this is something, why exactly the Russian soul was very keyed into this, it's difficult to say, but they were very sensitive to this, and they picked this up. And again, it has something to do with the notion of you know the we rather than the, the me or the I, um, you know, something to do with the whole notion of the, the the propensity for mystical kind of inwardness and experience from the religion that they adopted, but um, these are the questions that that obsess them, and likewise today. You know, I mean, we we've treated the planet as if it just was raw material there for us to do with what we want, even though from many sources we know, you know, either from ancient cultures or indigenous ones today, they have a different approach to it, and they recognize this, for the sake of a better word, a kind of inwardness or a soul, you know, to the, to the planet itself. And um, if you don't take that into account, the consequences can be, um, you know, um, um, not particularly salubrious. And we seem to be experiencing that today in different ways. And again, I'm not saying that these philosophers from the, Russian silver age can solve all our problems but they were, they were addressing they were addressing they were addressing limitations and drawbacks in the western way of seeing the world uh, at a time you know when the problems we face today were just sort of in the germinal stage you know, we're, we're, so they were addressing these they were addressing these sort of problems they saw these things on their way put it that way you know they saw them on their way if, if if you continue along this line, these sorts of things are going to happen and then that was you know that was aborted by the Bolsheviks and now hundred years later, the kinds of things they were saying you need to watch out for are actually happening so yeah.
0: um
2: and and you know um i I just think again, I'm not saying they have the answers but they they were they were working towards something they were working to try and rectify the imbalance and uh, I say in the book it, uh, it I, I, I allude to an earlier book of mine called *The Secret Teachers of the Western World*, where in that book I spell out well the imbalance has a lot to do with just the, the differentiation between the two sides of our brain, the left and right brain. You know, I mean, for, to put things very simply, we've, we've become a more and more left-brain dominant uh, kind of culture and society. This is something that Ian McGilchrist um, wrote about who is a neuroscientist in this wonderful book called The Master and about the, the, He sort of reboots the whole left brain, right brain story. And um, all, again, all that we, we need all that. We don't want to jettison that. But without the other side, which gives us a sense of um, a kind of immediate, intuitive participation in the world, where we, we don't see it as just this objective stuff out there that we can do whatever we want with, that we're disengaged from. We, we, we wind up in the sort of situation where we are today, you know, with, with climate change and you know, even the corona you know, virus in the sense that the way uh, animals and livestock are treated and, and, and that kind of thing, you know, they're, they're, they're subjected to conditions that uh, lead to the kinds of you know, diseases and things like that that uh, eventually come home to roost in us.
1: Yeah, unfortunately. Well, I think the the most important thing that you bring out is, is that that the, the it and it's not religion as much as it's spiritual. Um, you know, this the spirituality, the, the the soul, the the link to a creator, um, more important in my mind than than a, an organized religion, and you can't. It, it, there, there's no sort if you say a church of spirituality that you've put in a box, so you can't do that. but spirituality goes with every religion and and it should go with government as well. I mean it's, it's a part of us, and it, it seems to me that that the the seeking of the meaning of life and the journey through this lifetime and all of that stuff, is is something that that makes you a richer person um, in many ways, and it hasn't been in any way um, nurtured in today's society mm. here. and if if what they're doing in Russia is getting them more and more into that, it's okay to think about this stuff. It's okay to theorize about it. It's okay to stretch yourself. That means that they're giving themselves a better balance, as far as being human beings and, and a member of the human race, than we have here.
2: Well, uh, well, I guess that's the idea. That's what that's what they're saying, and I hope that's you know I hope that's the case. Uh, but in any way, we we can we can try and strive for that. And one way of doing that, I think, is making ourselves aware of of the ideas that these people from the Silver Age that the russians now are reclaiming you know we, we can be aware of that too um i mean they're very deep philosophers you know i mean uh you and they're dealing with wide issues that deal both with the outer and the inner world it's you know the in, inwardness i mean i mean i i, I mean I, I think for me you know inward spirituality inwardness i mean these, these kinds of things this notion of this interior world that um all of our values and you know, sense of meaning and all of that comes from. I mean, this is the sort of thing that hasn't been, you know, uh, given its due in the West at all. In fact, it's the opposite. This, this is, this, sadly, this is, as we say it, one of uh, the, you know, some of the collateral damage that's come from the success of the Western scientific um, approach in terms of raising standard of living, basically, you know, being able to deal with and manipulate the outer world is that the inward the inner world is, is you know, dried up. Um, and this is the thing that I said. Whatever Putin's trying to make with this, okay, but let us not be put off by trying to understand, you know, what these writers have to tell us just because Putin may be reading them. I, I hope he's reading them for the right reasons. I don't know. I mean I'm I'm, I'm i again I'm, I I kinda drifted into writing about politics. I'm not really politically interested. I drifted into writing about it in the book on Trump because of this notion of this occult esoteric new thought philosophy behind Trump, you know, Trump is a follower of positive thinking and so on and so on and so from that I got into this but I think, you know, we're at at this I mean, again, it's interesting to me because this is 2020 I was writing the book in 2019 it's 100 years from uh, some of the things I talked about in the book so it seems like, okay, we're 100 years on from now and I don't think we in the West have got any nearer to solving this problem and in fact things have got worse so maybe these guys can help us, they can give us some sensibility. And you know, so much of it is about recognizing not only our own inwardness and our only our only spirituality, but the spirit of the world, you know, the inwardness of the of the planet, which you know, indigenous people and ancient peoples were yeah, we're we're in tune with more than, than we are. You know, our success a species our success our success, you know, in the outer world depended upon our ignoring that. But but okay. The way I see it, very you know, in a simple way of saying it, you know, it was necessary for us to ignore this inwardness of the world in order to, you know, achieve the kind of success technologically that we enjoy today. But we've come to a point where we need to, we need to say, okay, let's put that on hold for right now, and let's go back and try to understand the inwardness because the success of the one is starting to you know um, impinge and 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 um, act. Than, you know, negatively on, on this other. And you know, yeah,
1: there's no balance. Yeah. It,
2: it, yeah, well what do you want to say? It was say, it was said years ago, you know, what profits a man to gain the world and lose his soul? That's the same thing. What profits a civilization to gain the world and lose its soul? You know, we we are able to do these remarkable things but we don't know why we're doing them anymore. And you know, the most important things in so many people's lives is whether they can go out to the big sales on Black Friday and things like that. And that that can't be what we're living for. You know, we have no. to look for something other than that, you know. So, but, you know, if, if you read this book and you read, it leads you on to reading some of the people I talk about in it, then by all means, that's good. It's, uh, any road to oh, the soul absolutely. is a good one.
1: <laughs> yes. And if it makes you think all the better and question, absolutely. Um, the book is fabulous. And, and for those of you that, you know, didn't hear the title before, it's The Return of Holy Russia. Apocalyptic History, Mystical Awakening, and the Struggle for the Soul of the World. Great title, and it's, it's a fascinating read. You're going to learn a lot more than you, you can ever imagine from it, and um, it'll make you think a little bit more. Gary, um, I just noticed the time, and we, we are out of it. Um, I want to thank you so much. You, you can be gotten at garylackman.co.uk. And um, I want to thank you so much for being here. It it was such a pleasure to talk to you.
2: Oh, you as well. And thank you so much for having me on.
1: It was my pleasure. Absolutely my pleasure. And and it was a joy to read your book, and I'm going to read it again at my leisure so that I can really get more out (laughs) of it, too. That's what we want to hear. It is. Well, it (laughs) is. But but it's, 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 worth, it's worth it to read it slowly and, and not just charge through it. Um, but I do thank you so much, and, and, and I look forward to reading some more of your books and getting you back on again at a later date.
2: Well, thank you. I look forward to that too.
1: Okay. Thank you, everybody, for being with us tonight. We so, I so appreciate your sharing your time with us. Uh, um, Mark Eddy has a great show tomorrow, so please tune in and uh, check us out at, on YouTube. And uh, if, you, uh, if you enjoy what you're listening to, please subscribe to the station. We, w- we really would love to have your support. Good night, everybody. Thanks again.